So we're picking up where we left off last week on ascension. When we look at ascension, the ascension of Christ, it's the heavenly position and source of limitless uh, divine riches given to the believer in the church age, including the Holy Spirit. And to look at that really quickly, let's look at the statement in Ephesians 1, 3, and then let's also look at the, the statement in John 7. But Ephesians 1, 3, I think many, many of you are familiar with, but Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then notice the position, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ or in the heavenlies in Christ. And obviously that those blessings are based on the fact that Christ is in the heavenlies. He's seated at the right hand. He's ascended to the Father. And as such, our blessings are completely tied to that source and based upon his ascension. Then notice a, a very interesting comment in John chapter 7. And this is one of those uh, after-the-fact commentaries that I think that John provides us after the story has been written, at, after he's had many years to reflect on these things. But in John chapter 7, in verse 37, we read that on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what is Jesus talking about? John then provides commentary, verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not yet ascended to heaven. We see, obviously, um, even the blessing of the Holy Spirit was dependent upon the ascension of Jesus Christ. And and so in that way, the ascension is necessary for believers to be placed in Christ. This was very necessary. This is where God identified us with with Jesus. We, We died to sin with Christ. We were raised to newness of life. We were placed in Christ. And the ascension was necessary for all that to transpire. We see that recorded in a couple places in scripture is referenced there. So by their position in Christ and their identification with Christ, the church has already been given ascension privileges. You know, Ephesians 2, 6 says that we are seated with Christ, seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Colossians 3, 1 uh, encourages us to, to set our mind on things above because we were raised with Christ and, and Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. These are privileges that believers possess now. All right, so number two, the ascension makes available to the believer the fullness of God himself through the crucified and ascended Christ. We looked at that when we were studying through Ephesians, that section of chapter one, which is really the power section, all the power that's available to the believer that that Paul wants us to know about, what we possess, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power available to us in our Christian life. And this is available to us as a result of the ascension. That was one of the key components, if you will, in order to provide that for us. Letter B, the ascension is the basis for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church age. We already looked at the section there in John 7. Let's go to Acts 1 and let's put a couple of passages together there. Acts 1, Acts 1, 9 through 11 says this, Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So we see the ascension recorded for us there. And then jump over to chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see that, again, as John 7 said, that the Holy Spirit had not been given yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But here we see the ascension happen in Acts chapter 1 and then the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit beginning on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see the, the time frame there. One of the things too that we see is that the ascension is the basis for fellowship and victory. Roman numeral 4, through the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Trinity has added humanity to the sphere of intimate fellowship within the Godhead. This too is the design for every believer in this life as the source for acceptable, godly, spiritual fruit. I just want you to think about that for a second. I I really like the author of these notes. I, I really like the way that he words this here. It's something that you don't think about often. As Jesus is glorified, he is he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glorified humanity, the same type of glorified body that you and I will possess, Jesus has. He's exalted to a position higher than any other position at the right hand of the Father. And yet for the first time in history, the fellowship between the Trinity, the Godhead, includes glorified humanity. I mean, it just it's mind-blowing to think about this. And this happened at the Ascension. And it's one of those things that provides a great picture for each one of us because this is the design for you as well. This is the design for every believer, obviously one day in glorified humanity, being perfect fellowship with the Lord. But right now in this life, we, we have the ability to be in fellowship with the Lord and as such live life from a source that's acceptable for bearing fruit. It's just really incredible to think of those things. Let's go, let's read Philippians 2. Verses 9 through 13. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 13. It says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see that word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. And it's based on basically Christ's ascension. Now we can live out an acceptable and godly life. Again, motivated, undergirded by the power and the means of the Spirit of God. All these things come together in terms of supporting one another. And then finally, uh, with the ascension, letter A, the ascension provides divine power of the cross 
and resurrection to be delivered from the practice of sin in everyday life. And you can see that in actually multiple passages in the New Testament, but uh, Colossians 3 is referenced there. All right, let's move on now to the final topic we're going to consider in our study, and that's the topic of grace as it relates to Christ, our substitute. And I think, obviously, we're very familiar with this word overall, but let's just talk through some of the aspects of grace, some of the benefits of grace on the basis of the finished work of Christ. First thing we want to look at is grace defined. Grace defined, uh, since believers are justified by faith apart from works through the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, God is now free to treat them in grace according to his own infinite goodness without compromising his holy character. You know, that's something that we've talked about quite a bit in this study, and we we often talk about on Sunday mornings, understanding that grace is is not God just letting people off from their sin. He's not just saying, oh yeah, you're guilty and you deserve this penalty, but I'm just going to let you off. That's not what grace is at all. Grace is you're guilty, you deserve this penalty, somebody must pay this penalty, but I'm going to provide a substitute to pay your penalty so that justice is fully executed. His holy character is not compromised in the process. And yet on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for each one of us, he is free to give us something we don't deserve, which is forgiveness of sins, eternal life, etc. And so one of the things that we learn about grace in Romans 5 verses 20 through 21 is that grace can never be outdone by sin. Grace always outruns and overruns sin. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Notice that when the law enters the picture, sin and offense increase. That's one of the things that's that's crazy about the law in general. Many people introduce the law either in justification or in sanctification and, and the desires to restrain evil and to produce righteousness. And you know, when the law is introduced, It does the exact opposite with sinful humanity. It points out sin and it actually stirs up the sin nature to want to break it. And so it produces the opposite of righteousness. It produces unrighteousness. And yet as sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. Verse 20 tells us then Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then go from there to 2 Timothy 1 9. 2 Timothy 1 9. It says that who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He saved us, he's called us. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. We see that grace is given to us freely. It's designed to meet all of God's holy demands of justice. And yet at the same time, it doesn't compromise his holy demands for justice. Number one, grace means simply that no condition can be, can be applied. Grace means unearned or unmerited blessing from God, and thus any condition placed upon the recipient of grace nullifies grace. 
And this is so often in an effort for, for people not to abuse grace, people try to define grace and they try to put conditions on grace and they got to say, well, yeah, the grace of God is free, but it's going to cost you everything. The grace of God is free, but you got to, you got to at least try to maintain, or you got to try to do this, or you got to try to do this. And the point of the matter is the definition of the word grace cannot require any condition right now or any condition in the future. In fact, when we look at the scriptural definition of grace, it means free gift or gratuity apart from any merit on the part of the recipient. And and look with me really quickly in Romans 11, verse 5 and 6. You know, the scripture is very clear that if you're going to place a condition on grace, then you have to change the definition of the word grace. You can't use grace and then say you're putting a condition on it. It just doesn't work that way. It's not allowed by, by language rules. Verse 5, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And again, we've been over this before, but the only non-work that's described in the Bible is faith. Because faith is looking away from yourself, not looking to your own works, looking away from yourself to somebody else's work for you. And that's why faith goes with grace. God giving you something you don't deserve through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And you are looking away from yourself to benefit from his work for you. But that's not meritorious on your side. Christ gets all of the merit when it comes to securing our salvation. Closely related is the word mercy. They're they're somewhat synonymous, but there's a distinction. And, And hopefully that distinction has been made for us over the years. But grace emphasizes undeserved blessing But mercy emphasizes deserved judgment withheld. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So when you think of mercy, mercy provides prevention of punishment. Whereas grace provides an addition of undeserved blessing. And I think we've we've illustrated that a number of times over the years, but grace is giving you something you don't deserve. You know, to simply put when a, when a child misbehaves and let's say that child was told, if you do that one more time, you're going to receive discipline, maybe a spanking. But instead of when the child does it, instead of spanking them, you don't spank them. That's mercy. They didn't get what they deserved. But then in place of spanking them, you take them out for an ice cream cone that's grace. They got something they didn't deserve. Not only did they not deserve ice cream, they deserve to be spanked. But that's the distinction between the two words. That's probably a poor illustration for the grace of God, because when we talk about grace, it's almost as if, yes, the you do not get the spanking as, as a disobedient child, but God himself stepped in place and took that punishment for you. And the, the reward or, or the ice cream that he should have received by taking your place and spanking, you now get what, what he should have gotten, so to speak. I know those a lot of these human illustrations break down on this point because obviously it's hard to illustrate grace. It's not really a human concept. It's a divine concept that God thought of. Let her see. 
Grace is not only the basis for us being saved, but it is also the basis for our living the Christian life. This is so important to see. Let's go to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This is a great passage. If you like to memorize scripture, I would really strongly encourage you to memorize this passage in Titus 2, 11. It's going to get into our thinking that Grace is the basis for the Christian life as well. Many of us have realized that for justification, for salvation from hell, forgiveness of sins, we understand that. But when it comes to the Christian life, oftentimes we want to take the wheel back over. We want to strive and and grunt it out in the strength of our own efforts. And we've got to understand that grace is also designed to be the basis for our Christian life. In fact, it's the only way we're going to be successful in the Christian life where we live a life that's acceptable and fruit bearing to God. So look at Titus 2, 11. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. Now what's teaching us? Go back to verse 11. What, what is teaching us? It's the grace of God here that's teaching us. And it's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, grace teaches us how to live righteously in the present age. Not the law, not striving after law keeping or legalism, not trying as hard as we can to, to adopt all the spiritual disciplines we can think of, but learning how to walk by means of the Spirit, how to walk in God's grace resources. That is designed to be the basis for our Christian life. And then, by the way, the, one of the reasons I say this is a great passage to memorize is because it it really reflects all three tenses of our one salvation. In verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Past tense, justification. Verse 12, it's presently teaching us how to live godly in the present world. That's sanctification. Verse 13, this is glorification. We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's all packaged there in one helpful passage. Now, one of the things in letter D is what we see from the scriptures is that God's grace is accessed through humble faith. And this is the only way to access it for both justification and sanctification. James 4, 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you think about humility and faith, faith is is really a, a fruit of a humble mindset. Because in humility, you, you have an accurate view of yourself. And then you recognize that you don't have enough righteousness to attain heaven. You recognize that you don't have enough strength to live the Christian life in an acceptable way to produce a a practical righteousness. Because you have an accurate view of yourself, you're willing to trust in God and his solution alone. And so you see how humility comes together with faith. When we talk about justification, we have to have an accurate view of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, and thus we need to look outside of ourselves for the solution. This is humility here. And this is where many unbelievers, unfortunately, they never reach this understanding. They never reach this understanding of having an accurate view of themselves. They think at some level they're going to make themselves acceptable to God or righteous enough that God has got to accept them. And they need to realize this statement. They cannot save themselves. They need to look to an outside source for the solution. And and hopefully 
they look to God and his solution in Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. But they need to first have an accurate view of themselves. And this is what we call humility. And this is access. uh, God's grace is accessed in this way for justification. But for sanctification, the same is true. We must also have an accurate view of ourselves. We need to understand that I'm powerless to live the Christian life. And thus, I must look outside of myself for the solution. This is humility. And for many believers, they've never gotten to this point. They actually, deep down, although they may agree with this on paper, deep down, when the rubber hits the road, they are trusting in themselves to live the Christian life. They are trusting in their spiritual disciplines. They are trusting their ability to not get angry. They're trusting in their ability to be patient. They're trusting in their ability to love. I mean, they're trusting in themselves every step of the way, and they haven't quite learned this truth yet. They don't have an accurate view of themselves. And oftentimes, God allows us to be exposed in an embarrassing way. So oftentimes, a sinful, embarrassing way. Not that he's the author of sin, but I think he allows us to see sometimes what has been brewing under the surface, not to slap us upside the head, but to get our attention and to have us realize this truth right here. And that's this, you and I are powerless to live the Christian life. And if we trust in ourselves, it's going to do nothing but produce destruction, chaos, and, and death. That's what the scriptures say. The wages of sin is death. We need to stop having confidence in ourselves. We need to stop having confidence in our own evaluation of things. And we need to start looking outside of ourselves for the solution to live the Christian life. And this is humility. Humility, again, is having an accurate view of oneself and an accurate view of God's person and his ability to provide a solution where we are lacking. And again, this type of response is key to accessing God's grace. We can't be proud in trusting ourselves and then say, oh yeah, I'll trust in God's solution too, or I'll trust in addition to Jesus Christ myself. It doesn't work that way. We've got to realize I can't do it. We have to have an accurate view of ourselves. I can't do it. God can. I don't have the solution. God does. And that's by, by stating that or realizing that we have been humbled to the point that we're ready to trust the Lord. May God get each one of us there quickly if we're not there already. Letter E. Grace and the good news of the gospel are integrally related. They are integrally related. And you see that like in Acts 20, 24, Paul talks about the gospel of the grace of God. Galatians, when Paul is astounded that the Galatian believers are turning away from the gospel he's preached. Notice how he words in Galatians 1, 6. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. First of all, when you turn away from the gospel, you're turning away from the person of Jesus Christ. So that's point number one in verse six. Notice you're turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And so we see the gospel is a call to God's grace. And so we see they're integrally related. Letter F, while grace is freely given, incredibly generous and motivated by God's eternal and infinite love, it is also according to the truth of God's word based on the reality of God's creative grand plan in Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's interesting because we see in John 1, John 1, 17, it says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace and truth, grace is based upon the truth of God's word. They go 
together. Look at Hebrews 2.9. This is very important to see God's grace and His truth tied together. Hebrews 2.9. Again, this is not God compromising His character, compromising His justice in any ways. What it is, though, is He's allowing, by His grace, to allow Jesus to take your penalty. Look at Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, notice, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Very important to see that not only is it free, generous, motivated by his love, but it's also according to truth. It's not just random out there in the air somewhere. What about grace in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament? Let's look at a couple of tie-ins. And one of the first things we see is that the New Testament Greek term for grace is a biblical carryover from the Hebrew word hesed, which means loving kindness and is often translated mercy. And then we'll look at that next sentence here in a second, but let's fill in the blank. The grace of God is law-free, but it's not lawless. And that's very important because that's often what you get accused of if you if you teach too much grace is that you're encouraging lawlessness. And that's obviously the opposite of, of what grace teaches. Exodus 15, 13, we, we see this in the Song of Moses. He says... You and your mercy, speaking to God, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. And then jump forward to Exodus 19, 1 through 4, and look how he describes this merciful approach and leading of the Exodus generation. Verse 1, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, They came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. And then notice this description. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And that is a picture of grace in the Old Testament, as described by the word mercy for Moses' song. He took care of the Egyptians. He took care of their enemy for them. They could not break free from the slavery of Egypt, but God delivered them. And then notice how he describes how he did it. He bore them on eagle's wings. And that's a picture of a mama eagle flying with her baby and just flying. The baby just rests in the mom and, and the mom is doing the flying. It provides this beautiful picture of of loving kindness and grace where God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. Now, when we talk about the grace of God being, it's law-free, but it's not lawless, we're going to develop that a little bit more here in the next couple of points. Letter A, when we talk about the law, the law defines sin by revealing right from wrong. It defines the consequences for sin and it reveals God's holy character. Jump to Romans 3 for that. Romans 3.20, which says that, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law clearly defines what sin is. And then Romans 6.23, the breaking of God's law clearly defines what the penalty is. It's, It's death. There's a consequence for breaking God's law. So the law also shows sinners that they need a Savior. But the law itself cannot save from the penalty of sin 
or from the power of sin. Now, one of the things that uh, we often use to illustrate this is because the law is a great tool. It's like a mirror. You know, oftentimes, you know, before we go out in the morning, maybe before we go to work or before we're going to see somebody, we'll look in a mirror. We'll kind of look at our face. We'll, you know, make sure we're not, we don't have dirt somewhere. You know, if you're, if you're a guy and you have facial hair, maybe you make sure your, your hair's not, you know, you don't have hair growing out of your nose or it's, you know, your beard's not even. If you're a woman, maybe you take that time to put on some makeup and cover some things up, but you typically look at your face. The mirror is there, what? Designed to show you if, you, if something's wrong. Now, if I've got a hair growing out of my nose and, and the mirror shows me that, I don't take the mirror off the wall and cut my, my nose hair with it, right? I Maybe I grab a trimmer with it. Maybe if there's a smudge of dirt on my forehead, maybe I missed something in the shower. I don't take the mirror off the wall to clean it. The mirror shows me that I'm dirty. The mirror shows me that I'm, I've got you know hair growing in the wrong spot. But the mirror doesn't provide the solution to those problems. And in the same way, the, the law is like that mirror. It shows us that we're sinners. It shows us that we need a Savior. But it itself is not our Savior. The law can't save you from the penalty of sin. That's what many unbelievers unfortunately believe. And they need to change their mind about this. But they think if they just try to keep the law better going forward, then God will will someday accept them. And that's not true. That will never happen. Because they can never achieve a righteousness that's equal to God's righteousness, which is perfection. But what believers need to understand is the law is not there either to help us overcome the power of sin. It may point out that we need God's deliverance. In fact, I think that's what it what it shows us in Romans chapter 7. Look at Romans 7, 7. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness until, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now that's great. The law has a very positive purpose. It reveals sin. And even for the believer, oftentimes when we understand the law, we start to see even when internally we're sinning, not just when we're doing big acts, but we start to recognize when something internal is going on. Maybe we're insecure. We're jealous of somebody. Maybe we're insecure. We're envious of somebody. Maybe we we feel like our validation is tied up in the car we drive and we just covet somebody else's car or covet somebody else's shoes or what have you. And we begin to see this internally. That's a good thing. But Many believers then try to take the law off the wall and live the Christian life by saying, oh, I got to stop being covetous. And then you rub your head a little bit with the mirror. And that's not the design at all. Because when you take the law upon yourself as a believer, this is what happens. Look at verse eight. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. The key to this passage is found in verse 8, sin taking opportunity by the commandment. In verse 11, sin taking occasion by the commandment. And what happens is, is when we try to live the Christian life by taking the law upon ourselves, we are kicking a sleeping, vicious dog inside of us. It actually, 
arouses or revives indwelling sin to want to break the law. So this is why it's so important that the grace of God, understanding that grace is the basis for the Christian life, it's law free because the second we try to bring law into the Christian life, it irritates and disrupts and wakes up the sin nature to want to break it, thus making us lawbreakers. That's what's so insidiously evil about our sin nature. It takes this good, perfect, holy law of God and it misuses it to our own detriment. So very important, again, to understand why grace has to be the basis for the Christian life, not law keeping. Letter B, the substitutionary life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ fulfills the law in place of the sinner by paying the penalty for sin, which satisfies God's holiness, right? Galatians 3 tells us that Christ became a curse. Why? Because the law said cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And basically the curse of, of the law of breaking the law is death. Christ became our curse and took that curse for us and fulfilled the demands, the righteous demands of the law. And we know that from the scriptures that Jesus Christ himself is the righteousness that God demands. And it is his righteousness that the believer stands in. Look at a couple of passages. There's one I want to read that's not on our notes, but look at Romans 2, verse 16. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 16. And it says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. You see, God's standard of judgment First of all, what should frighten us to no end is, is number one, he's going to judge even our secrets. So every thought that any one of us has had is subject for evaluation. Now, now praise God, Christ has been judged in our stead. Okay. So we're not going to face that judgment at the great white throne. But the point is this, is that when, when God is judging on righteousness standards, he's going below the surface. It's not just what we see as evidence. It's not like only what can be presented in a court of law. I mean, nobody's going to get off on a technicality when it's the judgment of God at the great white throne judgment. When he's evaluating someone's righteousness, even their secret thought life is going to be borne out at that point. That's the first thing that should scare an unbeliever. The second thing is the standard is Jesus Christ, not my neighbor, not the guy down the road, not my dad, not my mom, not my brother. Jesus Christ is the standard and that ought to frighten anybody because he is perfectly righteous. But that's the good news of the gospel, right? Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's, the idea is that he became a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our righteousness is based on our position in Jesus Christ. He himself is our righteousness. And that's what his substitutionary life and death and what grace. Letter C, the church age is characterized by grace in contrast to the work system of Old Testament law. Again, we see that contrast in John 1, 17, right? Through Moses, the law came, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that that grace was not existent in the Old Testament. The point is this, is that it's the church age is characterized by grace. That's the primary characterization. That is God's method of restraining evil in the church age. It's his rule of life. And this is why Romans 6, 
14 is, is really such a, an important verse because it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. As you unpackage that verse a little bit, you realize that what it's saying, if you take the opposite, is that if you put yourself under law, sin is going to have dominion over you. And if you don't believe that, just read forward in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That's a believer who tried to put themselves under law, thinking that, hey, I've, I've got a new man, I've got new desires, and I'm just going to try to keep the law to grow my sanctification. Everything in terms of proper motivation was in place. The problem was, is he wasn't empowered by the Spirit of God. And we pointed that out when we were studying through Romans. When you look at Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, I think you see the personal pronoun, I, me, my, used over 40 times. The Spirit of God is never mentioned once. And that is what one commentator is entitled, powerless sanctification. When we are trying via the law to do the best we can, it will result in abject failure every time. Sin will have dominion over that type of person. Whereas in Romans six fourteen it says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is the key to not being dominated by sin. And we've got to understand that that's God's method for delivering us from the dominion of sin. Remember, the Mosaic law was a rule of life for the Jewish nation. It was designed to restrain evil, but it was weak through the flesh. That's exactly what Romans 8.3 teaches. It says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. See, the law is perfect, good, holy, and just. But the law was inadequate as it relates to producing righteousness in a human. It's just inadequate. It's, it, it just wasn't perfect in that function. And the reason for that was because it was weak through the flesh. The flesh brought it down. The flesh does not have power within its, its source to keep the law. In fact, we learn in Romans 8 that the flesh is at enmity with God. And so it doesn't even want to keep the law of God, let alone have the power to do it, even in its religious form to do so. Grace is also a rule of life for any believing Jew and Gentile. And it too is designed to restrain evil in the believer's life by completely delivering the believer from sin's power. Go on in Romans 8, 4. You know, the law was was weak through the flesh. It couldn't do what it needed to do. Verse 4, but that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And see, grace wants us to trust in God's resources and God's resources alone to live the Christian life. You see in Romans 8, 4, that if you want to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, obviously we don't want to be lawless in the Christian life. We want to be mindful of, of the righteous life that God has designed us to live. But if we want to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, it's by not trying to keep the law harder, but by learning to walk by means of the Spirit. The Spirit of God will produce the level of righteousness found in the law the Spirit of God can produce in your life as you walk in dependence upon Him. That is what grace 
provides. That's something that the law could not provide. It was weak. But grace through the empowering and indwelling work of the Spirit can provide a lifestyle that fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. So contrary to common misconception, believers were not saved in order to now keep the law. Many people will teach that, that now we've got the Holy Spirit and the reason we do is so we can keep the law. That's not it at all. In fact, our relationship to the law has been forever altered and changed due to our union with Christ and our death to the law with him. And let's read quickly since we're in Romans, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Notice the next word in verse four. It's therefore. He's making a conclusion here. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So notice God crucified us with Christ. We died to the law, not so that the law would continue to be a rule of life. So the law wouldn't be a rule of life for the believer in Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Because God has now united us to the resurrected Christ. He wants to produce newness of life that's on par with the righteous requirements of the law, but it's not through keeping the law. It's not by being restrained by the law. It's by what? Being restrained by the Spirit of God. And in Romans 7, 4, notice that very last phrase. This is very key. Why did God do this? Well, notice that word that. He did this so that we should bear fruit to God. This is the key to bearing fruit to God, living an acceptable life to the Lord. It's recognizing our proper relationship to the law. Number three, Roman numeral three. One of the things we need to understand is that grace is the basis for salvation in every phase of salvation. We often talk about three phases. The grace of God is the basis and means for salvation in every phase, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Letter A, God provides grace to undeserving sinners as the only means of salvation to save them from the penalty of their sins. The basis for God's grace in this phase of salvation is the death and resurrection of Christ. So notice that in the first phase, we're delivered or saved from the penalty of sin. And the basis for which God can do this is Jesus' death and resurrection for you. Letter B. God provides additional grace for believing saints. Okay, this is now for saints. Additional grace for believing saints as the only means of living an acceptable Christian life by saving them from the power of sin. The basis for God's grace in this phase of salvation is our death and resurrection with Christ. Okay, so again, in contrast to justification, we in sanctification were delivered from the power of sin in our daily life, not the penalty of sin. That was paid for when Jesus died for us. Sanctification is based upon the finished work of Christ, but the finished work emphasized in sanctification is our death and resurrection with Christ, not his death and resurrection for us. That's the basis for justification. The basis for sanctification is our death and resurrection with Christ. And obviously that is 
delineated in Romans 6 in, in much greater detail. But that is the key. That is God's solution to delivering you and I from sin's power in our daily life. Letter C, uh, or actually number one here. I guess we've got a couple more here on sanctification. Grace not only teaches us to live godly, righteous, and sober lives honoring to the Lord, but it also provides the means to do it. So we saw the teaching there in Titus 2, but Romans 6.14 again. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Grace provides the means to be delivered from sin's dominion. And what we see is that grace in sanctification provided a new relationship to sin as a source. It severed us from sin. It broke that automatic connection or domination by sin in our life. And it provides us with a new relationship with the Holy Spirit of God as a new and preferred source of living. Why is it preferred? Because this is the only means by which we can be delivered or have our sin nature rendered inoperative. As Romans 6, 6 says, Romans 8, 3 and 4 talks about the Spirit of God producing the righteous requirements of the law in us as we walk in fellowship with Him. And then finally, letter C, God provides spiritual gifts for the saints that are also graciously given to help serve the body of Christ. We see that detailed there in Ephesians 4, which we'll have a lot of fun when we get to that on Sunday morning soon. And then 1 Peter 4.10, just the idea that there are gifts given graciously to the saint given to help serve the body of Christ. The last section here is really just some quotes on grace that I wanted you to have in note form that you could refer to. I I hope that these are an encouragement to you. These would be great things to keep track of, if you will, not only for your own life, but for friends who may just need a word of encouragement. I've really taken them from two sources that I just think are very pugnant quotes, just very pertinent, very well worded. Those are taken from two sources, uh, a Romans commentary by, by a gentleman named William Newell, and then a book called Grace, the Glorious Theme by Lewis Berry Schaefer. And, and Schaefer was the, the founder and first president of Dallas Seminary. Let me just share these with you. We're just going to read through them. Nothing to write here. Just enjoy the quotes. Here we go. Newell, there being no cause in the creature why grace should be shown, The creature must be brought off from trying to give cause to God for his care. The creature obviously being us. So there's no cause in you. There's no cause that you give to God so that grace could be shown. So he's saying we must be brought off from the the thinking of trying to cause God to care for us. Because he, he cares for us on the basis of his grace without any cause or condition. Letter B. Grace once bestowed is not withdrawn. For God knew all of the human exigencies beforehand. His action was independent of them, not dependent upon them. I love that. Plus, you get some new vocabulary reading Newell and Schaefer. <laughs> but he knew all of the different human weaknesses and, and variances that, that we would have. He knew that all beforehand. But his action to, to bestow grace upon us was independent of all of those actions. To believe... And to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. And that's, that's a beautiful thing about grace. Whether you feel worthy or not, worthiness is never the, the issue. You are unworthy. That's the secret of grace. That's God has determined he's going to love you on the basis of his grace and on the basis of the finished work of Christ. 
Letter D, to refuse to make resolutions and vows, for that is the trust in the flesh. You know, we oftentimes do that when we fail in the Christian life. We say, God, I promise I'll never do that again. God, I I promise I'll never sin like that again. I'm going to, you know, beat myself up. I'll never. And we make resolutions and vows. And, and oftentimes that's because we're still trusting in our own strength. And so it just kind of points that out to make that distinguishing comment. Letter E, to expect to be blessed though realizing more and more lack of worth. We don't expect to be blessed because we're blessable. We expect to be blessed because we understand the grace of God and we understand that his blessings are based upon his grace and it has nothing to do with our own worth. Letter F, to hope to be better or hence acceptable is to fail to see yourself in Christ only. You know, these are things that we say often, don't we? Oh, I hope I can be better. I hope I can be hope I can be more spiritual. I hope I can be this. I hope I can be that. And the idea is that we hope to be better so that God will accept us more. And when we have that kind of thinking, it's because we're failing to see ourselves in Christ alone. Letter G, to be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. I love that quote. Uh, How many times have you been disappointed with yourself in the Christian life? And it just, again, it exposes a wrong focus when you're disappointed with yourself, you you have unfortunately believed in yourself. To be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan a blessing for you. To be proud is to be blind, for we have no standing before God in ourselves. Again, this is why humility allows us to access grace, is because we actually see we we can't do it. We need what God alone provides. Letter J, the lack of divine blessing, therefore, comes from unbelief and not from failure of devotion. And, you know, oftentimes we find ourselves living the Christian life. We think the exact opposite. We think, oh, well, we're not being blessed because we're not doing enough for God. And we better just do some more for God. And then he, he'll he have to bless us. But this really puts the screw right on the head. Lack of divine blessing is because we're walking in unbelief, not because we fail to be devoted enough. Devotion will come as we walk by faith. It's it's a fruit, not not the root. Just something to, to remember. To preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. The law made man's blessing depend on devotion. Grace confers undeserved, unconditional blessing. Our devotion may follow, but does not always do so in proper measure. Those were quotes by William Newell from his commentary on Romans. Now we're going to shift to some quotes by Dr. Chafer from his book on grace. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human failure and sin. In fact, grace cannot be exercised where there's the slightest degree of human merit to be recognized. Letter M, grace is more than love. It is love set absolutely free and made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgment of God against the sinner. And what a great description that is. Letter N. Grace is the limitless, unrestrained love of God for the lost, acting in full compliance with the exact and unchangeable demands of his own righteousness through the sacrificial death of Christ. Letter O, God cannot propose to do less in grace for one who is sinful 
than he would have done had that one been less sinful. Very, very great distinction. It's not about the amount of sin as to whether or not God can be gracious. Great. God grants grace to the, the least of sinners, the chief of sinners. It has nothing to do with anyone's level of righteousness or worthiness in order for God's grace to be extended to them. Letter P, God does not ignore or slight the fact of human guilt and sin, for he has met these issues perfectly and finally for all men in the death of his son. There remains no demerit nor degrees of demerit to be considered or recognized. The grace of God is, therefore, exercised in perfect independence of human sin or any degree of human sin. And this is why people who teach that you can lose your salvation, they don't understand grace because what they typically bring up is the fact that, well, if you go on sinning, if you continue in sin, if you commit a big sin, but they miss the fact, the truth of the matter is that God's grace is exercised in perfect independence of human sin or any degree of human sin. We People just don't understand that, and hence they think that at some level of sin can remove God's grace from you. But then again, it's grace would then be merited or demerited based on a condition, and thus it, it ceases to, to be grace. Finally, letter Q, grace is neither treating a person as he deserves, nor treating a person better than he deserves. It is treating a person graciously without the slightest reference to his deserts without the slightest reference to whether or not he deserves it or not. This is God determined to act in a certain way based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so it's it's obviously undeserving to be grace. That's the end of the study. Let's tie the proverbial knot there. But let me just close this with a word of prayer. We will see you guys soon. Lord, thank you so much for your word even in just studying all these different topics. I mean, I know that we just touched the surface. We, we couldn't even do probably justice to each one of these, but we're just so grateful for Jesus and what he accomplished and uh, just grateful that what he did was acceptable to you. We're grateful that we can now have access to you on the basis of what he accomplished. We're just so grateful. May he just be the consuming occupation of our lives. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.